So have you ever, uh, have you ever tied a string around your finger to help you remember something? <laughs> uh, maybe you haven't, but people have, you know. It's not just a joke. Someone needs to remember something, and so they use a, a little stumble, uh, uh, a thing to jog their memory, so they tie a string around the finger. Of course, people have found humor in that, and the running joke is you ask someone about the string tied around their finger, and they tell you they remember what it's for. Or they'll show you a picture of someone with presumably an exceptionally bad memory, and there's a string tied around all of their fingers and both thumbs, and maybe sometimes a couple of strings uh, uh, on each finger. Uh, and, and I, myself, I've never used a string, unless maybe it was for a joke. I may have done it for a joke. I, I don't know. But I've done things like that. For example, when I run out of a product that I use, uh, maybe aftershave or something, uh, instead of throwing the empty container away, I put it on the counter or dresser or uh, the desk, and, and I do that to remind me, to remind Anne to get some more. <laughs> and, and often I forget to remind Anne, but somehow the stuff magically appears probably because she sees the empty container and knows that why it's lying around and she gets it. Now, there's a name for that kind of thing. That string tied around the finger or the empty container on the counter used as a memory jog. It's called a mnemonic. <laughs> now, some people hear that, and they kind of shake their hands and said, why do people have to have a name for everything? But people who love words say, well, tell me more. And since I love words, I'm going to tell you a little bit more. (laughs) That string tied around a finger is a simple mnemonic, but there are some that are much more complex, and maybe because they're more complex, they're more deserving of a special name. You see, before the days of movable type, that is before the printing press, books, and therefore the information in books, were not readily available to everyone. And so a good memory was important, and it was highly prized by people. People needed to know things, and they couldn't easily look it up, and they did not have the Internet. So they came up with all kinds of aids to help them to remember things. And here's one you might know. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, right? So back in the day when history teachers cared about such things, that was an easy way to remember that date and get it right on a test. In fact, the teacher would tell you that little ditty so that you would remember. And and in the days before teleprompters, if someone needed to remember a speech, They would use a kind of mnemonic, and what they would do is they would imagine their home, right? And and they would kind of uh, associate each part of that speech with the place within the house. And in their mind, as they were speaking, they would make their way through their house and pick up each pace as they came to it. It was a way that helped them to do it. And teachers, too, wanting their pupils to remember things, would use different kinds of memory aids. Some were as simple as a, as a string around a finger, and others were more complex. Jesus taught in parables because they illustrate and they're memorable. Psalms and Proverbs are a kind of poetry which aids in remembering them. And both of those things are simple enough, but there are some more complex um, mnemonics in the Bible uh, that serve the same kind of purpose. Sometimes the structure or the arrangement of the passage is an aid to memory. Now, not to us. 
not to us, because we don't really need to rely on something like that. We, we have it right at our fingertips. We have the book, or, or we can go online and, and find what we need. But to the ancients, who didn't have those things, they were a help for their memory, even as complex as they were. Now, a common arrangement in the Old Testament could be described with red letters, right? So uh, where every letter represents a kind of an idea or a portion of a teaching, right? So you might have A, B, A prime, right? That's kind of the structure of the passage. Or it might be A, B, C, B prime, A prime, right? Now, I know that sounds kind of complex, uh, but that structure, uh, that arrangement uh, is helpful. And, and it actually draws attention to that portion that's right in the center, the central idea or section. And, and it shows a relationship on either side of that central idea. And for people who were serious about remembering such things, believe it or not, that helped them, right? Now, I'm telling you all of this, not just for general informational purposes, so it's good to know um, because it explains some of the things that you come across in the Bible and other ancient writings but also because in our text today, it follows that kind of a pattern, you know? And, and I want you to understand the reason that uh, the writer leads up to a point that he wants to make, and then he follows it with things that are somewhat similar to what he's already said. And then because this book that we're studying is one of the most difficult in the Bible, I think it would be helpful, especially here, to understand what the author is doing. Now, we're not going to try to draw all the parallels. That would require too much time. It's not appropriate for this setting. But those are the things that, which go into shaping our thoughts about the passage and the direction that we're going to take. The text, or the author, is Solomon, and the writing is Ecclesiastes. And we're making our way through it, and we're going to pick up where we left off in the middle of chapter 5, uh, verse 8 specifically. And we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 6. So you can join me there in your Bible, so you can follow along as a text is displayed on either side of me. Now in this section, Solomon begins by talking about some general truths which we should recognize and if we don't, we need to be told them, which is what he does. And then he tells us what we should know in order to live a good life. And if you've been here, as we've made our way through the book, you'll know that he, when we get there, that he's repeating what he said before. But again, as he's done in the past, he's going to add a little more information to it. And finally, he returns to a darker theme to tell us more of what life is like when we fail to bring God into the picture. Solomon is taking us on a kind of a journey. He gives us a glimpse of the world, and, and then he tells us God's design for human happiness. And after that, he shows us the darkness of life if we ignore God's truth. It's as though someone is making his or her way through this world. They are brought right up to this truth, but they walk right past it or maybe even right through it, but that truth doesn't change them, so they continue on a kind of a downward spiral. So we'll pick up our reading in verse 8 of chapter 5 where Solomon tells us that we shouldn't be surprised when sin expresses itself 
in a certain kind of way something which he's already referred to earlier in the book, and that is oppression is a fact of human existence. So we read in verse 8, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. So Solomon's already talked about the evils of oppression, and, and given the state of our human condition, we ought not to be surprised that that kind of thing's happened. Uh, people want things, and they will run right over other people to get that stuff. They will deny people justice. They will trample down their God-given rights. Anyone can act that way, but it is a special danger for people in power. And so Solomon talks next about governments, human governments, specifically because God has his own way of ordering life. And he mentions taxes too. Uh, And this is what he says, picking up in the middle of verse 8 and then all of verse 9. For one official is eyed by a higher one still, and over them both are others higher still. And the increase from the land is taken by all the king himself profits from the fields. So an official can oppress someone in his or her district, but there are people higher up in that chain of command, right? And, and others over them even, and they see what's going on. But they should see what's going on. And then the increase of the land and the profit which the kings enjoy is quite simply the taxes that everyone pays, right? So I want you to understand, Solomon is, uh, hasn't said anything here <clears throat> at all about the quality of the government or the kind of people who are in positions of authority. All he's done is kind of describe its structure. And one commentator that I read simply assumes that the government is evil and the oppression comes from it. And there are many examples like that in the history of the world, and the Bible itself records uh, such. But the text doesn't say that. There have been many governments which we could characterize as good. Not perfect, no, but fulfilling the role which God designed for them. There were good kings in the Old Testament, David and Hezekiah, as well as bad ones like Ahab or Manasseh. Although there were times in England and that they abused the power that they had, and our nation is a result of one of those abuses, for the most part they were a source of a lot of good in the world. They put a stop to slavery in an immense part of the existing world throughout their empire, and they addressed other evils too numerous to mention. Our nation, founded on biblical principles and and recognizing the sinful inclinations of the human heart, diffused power over three branches of government to make it harder for the corrupt to gain control and oppress people. And it's been a light in our dark world for almost 250 years now. See, when a government is good, one official in the district may be doing wrong but someone above him should become aware of it and put a stop to it. And if the, compression, the oppression continues, let this demonstrate that corruption goes higher up the line, sometimes all the way to the top. So this is the human condition. It's at least part of it. Uh, there are those who will oppress others. And we all live under governments. Sometimes they help or sometimes they hurt. 
And, and this oppression, this corruption that we might see in government stems from the desire for things like wealth or, or fame or power. And money represents all of that to human beings. So Solomon turns our attention, uh, his attention and ours, to some truths about money. Our scripture reading talked in part about that when it talked about the deceitfulness of riches. And Solomon has several things to say about them. Uh, riches certainly can be uh, deceitful. So he, so he says, the wisest man who's ever lived with the exception of Jesus Christ. So first in verse 10, he tells us just how unfulfilling riches are. Whoever has money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. It's so unfulfilling. I think it was John Paul Getty who at one time, not all that long ago, uh, was the richest man in the world. When he was asked how much money he wanted, he replied simply and firmly, more. And a wise man would ask, why? You know, money's a cruel master. If you love it, it will drive you, and you will never have enough. And Solomon's comment at the end of verse 10 is that this, too, is meaningless. And if you haven't been here before, you need to understand that that word meaningless uh, is better translated something like a vapor or a passing breeze, meaning riches and their deceitfulness are not lasting. They are of no more real or eternal consequence than a puff of air. And secondly, riches are deceptive because the more you pile them up, the more things consume them. The beginning of verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. Simple example of this. Uh, you have a larger house than you used to have. So you have to spend more time mowing the grass. <laughs> or you have to hire somebody to do it, right? You have to fill the rooms with furniture. You have to go out and buy more than what you had. You have to heat it and you cool it. The taxes are higher. All of which requires you to keep working, to keep producing, which makes what you want to have even more stuff. It's kind of a vicious cycle, don't you think? I mean, can you see that? Not that a big house is wrong in itself. Don't misunderstand me. We're going to see that it really all depends on the heart. Uh, but, but if you have a big house, it's going to cost you. That's a fact of life, right? And then third, if that weren't bad enough, there's a point when there is no point. <laughs> in the middle of verse 11, we read this. And what benefit are those riches to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? You know, in a movie, all, all the money in the world about the Getty that I mentioned a little earlier had immensely valuable artifacts. I mean, huge collection, and they were stuffed away in corners and places and rooms and uh, that he never even went into. He didn't even feast his eyes on them, but they were his. There's no point to them. No point at all. When I was in seminary, I, I worked for an extremely wealthy family. They had $13 million of art in their house. 
they had a storeroom that was full of antique Persian rugs. It's worth a small fortune. They were folded up and lying on the shelves, giving warmth and pleasure to no one, but those rugs were theirs. Also pointless, don't you think? And the list goes on. The fourth thing Solomon tells us about the deceitfulness of riches is they don't bring rest to their owners. Verse 12, the sleep of the laborer is sweet whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. You know, when I was younger, I had a a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. (laughs) I loved that bike. And and there were times uh, that I would ride at places. And and at that time, I don't know if it's true today or not, but they were a high theft item. And so I'd get on my motorcycle and I'd go somewhere, and, and I'd go maybe to a store or to a friend's house, and I'd park the bike. And I could hardly walk away from it because I was worrying the whole time that it would be stolen when it was out of my sight. I mean, I liked the bike, but it gave me no rest at all. And people with a lot of money are kind of like that. Often they worry that they're going to lose it, and you can't rest when you're worried. And all of those things tell us something about the deceitfulness of riches, for they really only last but a moment. And in themselves, they are unfulfilling. The more you have, the more they consume. And often there's no real point to them anyway. And wealth causes its own kind of restlessness. Now, having said that, right, uh, you might think Solomon has uh, about said all there was to say about the subject, but you'd be wrong. (laughs) Uh, Solomon was the richest king to have ever lived, at least up until that time, and maybe no one else has been richer than he is, I'm not sure. Uh, But he knows the subject matter well. He knows it from the inside out, and he has more to tell us about it. Uh, And we're going to hear what he has to say now. And what Solomon seems to be telling us next, we could put this way. Money is not only deceitful, but it's fickle also. So he tells us two different sides of that in verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 says this, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Wealth which is hoarded, which is not used for some good purpose, is not only a waste, it harms its owner. The the Hebrew word there uh, indicates that that person's wealth devours them, eats him or her alive. It's almost like you can imagine someone hoarding and hiding and embracing highly radioactive material. But then wealth can also be lost, as verse 14 tells us. For wealth lost through some misfortune, so when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. You know, wealth promises you something. It promises to protect you. But It is no hedge against disasters, and wealth itself is subject to them. And then all the plans that we laid based on our money come to nothing. We'd hoped our children would inherit it. They'd get what we'd worked for, but now they'll have nothing, and maybe they'll have even less than nothing if we haven't taught them better and more important things. Either way, wretches are both deceitful and fickle. Solomon tells us the rock-bottom truth uh, about riches. His money does you no good when you die. 
verse 15. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. Our culture sums it up with just six words. You can't take it with you. How many times have you heard that? How many times have you said that? You know, if you see a Brinks armored vehicle and it happens to be following a hearse, it got in line by mistake. You can be sure it's on its way to the bank and not the graveyard. You might think, as well known as that truth is, that everyone would conduct their lives accordingly, but it just isn't so, as verses 16 and 17 reveal. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? After all their days, they eat in darkness and with great frustration and affliction and anger. They know they can't take it with them. But they toil away for nothing of lasting value anyway, which they don't even enjoy. They are friends with the darkness. That's what eating in darkness means. And they're well acquainted with frustration and affliction and anger. That's the deceitfulness of riches. Now what Solomon does next, as we've already mentioned, he tells us a better way to approach life. But we're not going to go there just yet. We're going to save that for last. But you can see how, can't you, how someone at this point, someone might have heard what he's had to say and be ready right then after all of that to hear his wisdom on the matter. But not everyone. Not everyone wants to know. Not everyone wants to listen. Many simply want what they want. So Solomon, after telling us a better way, he returns to his theme. And we're plunged into the darkness of avarice and greed and covetousness. And unfortunately, it's not just a few stubborn people who fail to heed uh, Solomon's warning, as verse 1 of the next chapter, chapter 6, tells us. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. Now, in just a moment, he's going to describe that evil, which is under the sun, meaning people who live without regard to God. It's a grievous thing, but it is not uncommon. It weighs heavily on mankind. That means a lot of people are caught in that trap. There are also many people in this world who can be described as possessing everything and having nothing. That's pretty much what verse 2 says. God gives some people wealth possessions and honor, so they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless. It's a passing breeze. It doesn't last. It's a grievous evil. Now, I'm going to start. Are you guys with me? Good. Good. (laughs) A lot of information. I know. I know. But... uh, so we're going to start with the easy part of what we just read. Uh, it says strangers are enjoying the, uh, the things the wealthy have while the wealthy uh, themselves don't enjoy them. So I'm going to go back to kind of an illustration of a person buys their house, right? A wealthy person buys their house, and they fill it with their treasures, their furniture and their artwork and their decorations, and they hire someone to clean it and to care for it. And so the builder and the retailers and the artists, uh, the housemaids and the servants, well, they all enjoy their honest and honorable work. 
And they're paid for their labor, but the wealthy person without God, well, he possesses it all, but he doesn't really have it. There's no joy for him in it, in any of it. A life which possesses everything, but, but which really has nothing, is a terrible thing. And it passes away so quickly, meaningless, because it's such a, a vapor, a puff of air. God, God has granted that they have all the things that they lay their eyes on for a short time, But how can they enjoy them without God? God doesn't grant them that kind of joy. Because, as we've observed before today in our study of this book, that kind of joy only comes to those who live life according to God's design. And even if God could grant them such joy, he wouldn't. Because in their state, there could be hardly anything more detrimental, anything more likely to damn them eternally than that. See, if they don't enjoy their life without God, maybe they'll realize they don't enjoy it, and then they may have some hope. They may be willing to turn from it. But to allow them to lay, have everything they lay their eyes on and enjoy it too without God be utterly to blind them to their true condition. And then Solomon illustrates how impossible it is to get good out of this life without God by using a kind of a hypothetical example found in verses 3 and following. A man may have a hundred children and live many years. Now, typically, those are indications uh, of a life that's blessed, wouldn't you think? Uh, We read on. Yet, no matter how long he lives, if he can't enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, and I want you to understand, I'm going to stop right here. Solomon here is not talking about a proper burial in the sense of being put in the ground or in a tomb with all the right ceremonies. What he's talking about is being mourned, being missed, being grieved over. And if you possess it all but have nothing, well, maybe no one will miss you. No one will mourn you. He he goes on and says that a stillborn child is better off than he is. And that's, that example, I think it shocks us, the stillborn child. But he, but he tells us something about the life of people like that by using that illustration. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. If you possess everything but have nothing, your life is without meaning. You depart in darkness and into the darkness, and the person God intended you to be is forever shrouded in mystery. And under such conditions, your state is worse than that of a stillborn child. Verses 5 and 6, Though they never saw uh, the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Don't all go to the same place. That last sentence. It's all about going to the same place. It's talking about death, the great leveler. Everyone, poor or rich, reaches the end of their days. Everyone. Everyone dies. There will be a few when Jesus returns who don't. Everyone else dies. So those possess everything but have nothing, they've been 
completely deceived by riches. They've been taken in by that which is utterly fickle. They have no joy. Their life is without real meaning. No one truly mourns them when they die. They cease to care for anything but that which pleases them. And Solomon's statement about those who possess everything but have nothing is to remind us that without God, no matter how ardent our efforts are, um, things can never truly satisfy our hearts. Verse 7, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. Things alone will never satisfy you. God is necessary for it all. So uh, here we go. Our writer at this point, he's kind of finished with this dark, discourse, having described, I think, very thoroughly the deceitfulness of riches. And what follows, which we're going to deal with much more expeditiously, we're going to move quickly here, is a kind of a call to sanity, right? The author kind of bends back to that uh, thing that we skipped over, which we're going to come to soon enough. He shines a light of reason on his subject. At first, he tells us the wise and poor often know a truth which those without God do not know, even though they may be really wealthy. And he does this by asking a rhetorical question in verse 8 and answering them in verse 9. What advantage have the wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Now, they're rhetorical questions. Do the wise have an advantage? If so, what is it? Even if a poor person has an advantage... Uh, do, do they have that advantage if they know how to live? And the answer to both questions is, yeah, verse 9. Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. And this, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. That appetite is a chasing after the wind. So if you follow that roving appetite, you'll never be satisfied. You're only chasing the wind. But the wise know better. Since they've learned to be satisfied with the things at hand, they don't chase the wind. And none of this is new. Not any of this is new. It's all common to humanity. That's what the beginning of verse 10 says. Whatever exists has already been named, and what humanity is has been known. Solomon began this section by telling us not to be surprised by oppression. We are sinners, and it shows. And in the rest of verse 10, he points out that we are completely incapacitated when it comes to death. We read, no one can contend with someone who's stronger, and the someone who's stronger is death. That becomes clear at the end of the passage. No one can contend with death. Death awaits all of us. A wise person, now he or she is poor, knows this. And they curb that roving appetite, and I think you ought to understand, it makes the good things of this life taste sweeter. Are you with me still? I hope you are. There's a couple more little short things to say as he's getting us back to the point here. But all of our talk, our complaining, our grousing, our pleading, our begging, all the multiplying of words that happens at those bad times in life that doesn't alter the meaning, that don't change a thing, and they help no one. Verse 11, the more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? It doesn't help, and it does not alter reality. And finally, verse 12 says, For who knows what, good, uh, what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless, that is all too brief, days they pass through like a shadow. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun when they're gone? Well, no human being can. 
No one in their own wisdom and their own understanding knows what makes life good, especially when you think about death. No one but God can tell us what happens later. So you add all of that to what we've already said. The wise know it is better to enjoy what one has than to chase after the wind to try to satisfy that thing which cannot be sated. Understanding our condition as a human being, knowing that death awaits us all and no amount of chatter can change that. And that all points back to that jewel, that real jewel right in the middle of this passage that we skipped over until right now. (laughs) And we see most of it before when you look at it. Solomon repeats this truth over and over again. Sometimes he adds new things to our understanding, but there's always the same basic idea and, and, and uh, that, uh, what God's design for human life is. The repetition itself is a mnemonic. It's said over and over again, and it tends to fix it in our minds. Somehow it reinforces the argument. The repetition is necessary, figuratively speaking, to batter down all the obstacles to good sense that our sinful natures erected. So over and over again, Solomon tells us that we should enjoy family and friends and learn to enjoy the honest and honorable work that God has called us to, which he's provided for us. Verse 18, this is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and remember that eating and drinking are symbolic. They, They represent fellowship or friendship. So Solomon is saying, enjoy your family and your friends and your community. And he continues, and find satisfaction in the toilsome labor on the sand. Find satisfaction. You may have to do a little digging. It may not lay on the surface. You may have to find a better job if that's possible. Not every job suits every person. But work itself is not the problem. It's not the curse. It was part of God's creation before the fall. And so Solomon says, find that satisfaction during the few days of life that God has given us them for this is our lot in life god has given us life it's his gift to us and it's meant to be enjoyed and pleasure comes from the simpler things and it's available to everybody those who chase the wind will miss all of that which is a real value Now, Solomon hasn't repeated all that he's told us in the past about God's design for living, but he does add a couple more pieces of information in verses 19 and uh, 20. Begin in verse 19. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them and accept their lot and be happy in life in their toil, this is a gift from God. Now, I know that sounds similar to what we just read, but there's a difference because, see, here he's talking about a wealthy person a person that God is blessed with in abundance and who enjoy this life according to God's design. And what we learn here is wealth is not the problem. It's an issue of the heart. People who love money never have enough. They're never satisfied and they don't know joy. But people who don't have money who are envious of those who do never have enough, They're never satisfied either. They don't know joy either. It's not the money that matters. It's the heart. It's what's inside that counts. And those who accept God's life on 
his terms. Enjoy this life, no matter how much money they do or don't have. And that last verse in the passage, verse 20, applies to those who have riches and those who don't. If God is in your life, if you've come to accept life on God's terms, we can read this. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. (laughs) God offers gladness of heart that money can't buy and that lack of money cannot block. Don't let the deceitfulness of riches steal that joy from you. The gladness of heart is God's gift to his people. It's a joy the lost world and those who chase the winds don't know. But they can know it. And you can know it. God will be glad to give it to anyone and everyone. All anyone needs to do is answer It's call. Have you heard his voice? Have you answered his call? Is God in your life? And are you living according to his plan? If not, then I want to ask you, what's holding you back? And if so, well, then you already know, don't you? You know God's blessing. You know that he occupies you with gladness of heart. And you don't worry about other things. I I know we all fail. I know we all stumble. I know we all drop the ball. I know sometimes we we worry when we shouldn't. But that's on us. If we realize all that God offers us, all that he wants to give us, fellowship, friendship, family, community, a job that is honorable and honest. There's joy there. There's peace there. There's happiness. That a chasing after the wind will never bring. Would you pray with me, please? Thanks, Father, for your um, grace and your mercy to us. Thank you that you not only provide our needs, but, Lord, when we, um, when we live life uh, according to your design, um, you give us gladness of heart. And thank you for that. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.